0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network in Latin American Studies, a podcast in the New Books Network. I am Kenneth Sanchez, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I will be talking with Dr. Anna Kant about her very interesting book, Land Without Masters, Agrarian Reform and Political Change Under Peru's Military Government. It is a fresh perspective on the way Peruvian government's major 1969 agrarian reforms Transform the social, cultural, and political landscape of the country. Thank you for joining us here today, Anna.
2: It's a great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Just uh, a brief uh, bio on Anna. Dr. Anna Kent is a Latin American historian with expertise in 20th century politics, cultural history, and rural development. Dr. Kent has taught in the UK and Colombia and has received scholarships from the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the Leverhulme Trust. She is currently an assistant professor of Latin American history at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Anna, perhaps to begin, you can tell us a little bit about yourself and the path that led you to write this book.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was born in the UK. I don't have any connections um to Peru, but I had a fascination with Latin America from a young age and traveled there as a teenager um, and really always wanted to go back following that. Um, I did a degree in history um, and then I did a master's thesis um, or a master's course in Latin American studies at the Center of Latin American Studies in Cambridge. Um, And I was very fortunate to have as my thesis supervisor, Dr. Gabriela Ramos, who is a very well-known Peruvian historian who actually focuses on uh, the colonial era, but as someone who had lived through the agrarian reform, she was uh, just a great source of advice and, and inspiration in, in studying this topic. Um, so for my master's thesis, I was really interested in the propaganda surrounding the agrarian reform, and I focused on, on the posters that were used to promote uh, the reform. Um, and I, the thesis ended up being published as, as a journal article in the Journal of Latin American Studies. Um, and I really enjoyed that whole research experience. You know, I interviewed uh, Jesus Ruiz Durand, one of the artists of the posters, and found some fascinating uh, material in the in the Peruvian National Library. But I realised through that process that this extended beyond propaganda; um, that the political impact of of the Peruvian Agrarian Reform took place across many different spheres, um, and that it varied hugely across the country. Um, So already I had an inkling that there were big regional differences in how uh, the agrarian reform was experienced. Um, uh, And that was something I wanted to study further. And and that's how my thesis project came about.
0: That's very interesting, Anna. Your article on the Journal of Latin American Studies Land for those who work it, a visual essay analysis of agrarian reform posters in Blascos, Peru, is very exciting as well. And people can check that out in the Journal of Latin American Studies. But uh, before we go on about the book, I think it will be valuable for our listeners to know a little bit more about the historical background of your book, Peru, you know, the agrarian reform under Velasco. Perhaps you can briefly tell us a little bit about it. Sure.
2: Um, so we're talking about the 1969 um, Agrarian Reform Law 17716. As, as uh, amazingly, people always remember the numbers of laws in Peru. It always impresses me. Um, this reform was carried out by the Velasco government, Juan Velasco Alvarado, who came to power in a coup in 1968. Um, And and it's often referred to as a a peculiar revolution, as an unusual case in in the Latin America of that time, because it was a government that was a military government, uh, authoritarian in a lot of ways, but also quite progressive in contrast to what was happening uh, in Argentina and Brazil at the time. uh, so the reform was really billed as a necessary uh change and, and something that had you know there'd been uh push against this system of, of the latifundio that saw concentration of land uh, uh, uh in in the hands of very few well while the vast majority uh, were barely able to subsist uh, on small plots of land and and were forced to work in often uh, very exploitative conditions. Um, So there had been uh, a couple of attempts at land reform earlier in the 1960s, 1961 and 1964, uh, but both of these attempts had... um, uh, sort of been stymied by entrenched landowner opposition and the ability to kind of get around the law so so the agrarian reform that the velasco government introduced was um explicit de- explicitly defined as a, as a radical agrarian reform that would redistribute land um, from large landowners to cooperatives to peasant cooperatives um, and so uh, according to the law, uh, property that exceeded the unaffectable limit, which was roughly the amount needed for a, a family, uh, could be expropriated by the state. Um, and it was then, once it had been expropriated, um, the, the landowners were given um, some recompense in, term, in, in the form of government bonds, and, um, uh, and then the land was adjudicated by the agrarian Tri- tribunal and the ministry of agriculture um, mm-hmm. and that's often where the kind of the big political battles took place because um, there were various competing uh, groups who who wanted to claim the land um, and the government had a very clear agenda of establishing a cooperative system that was built as a third way between capitalism and communism mm-hmm. um uh, and in that way, it's important to remember that this is an agrarian reform that takes place in the midst of the Cold War um, and uh, a desire to, to distance Peru uh, as from either the um, Soviet Union or uh, the US uh, and to kind of promote national independence um, and a kind of uh, nationally powerful in an autonomous economy. Um, so the reform redistributed more than 40% of the country's agricultural land and did dismantle the latifundio system. Um, but it was built throughout as an act of justice more than a, a way of increasing production or efficiency and in that way it's quite distinct from the agrarian reforms that were being carried out under the aegis of the Alliance for Progress for example but this is a reform that was at the at the heart of the Velasco government's political revolution to, to create a more egalitarian um and inclusive uh, Peruvian society
0: yes of course
2: and now diving
0: more into the book more specifically, I think it will be useful if we go chapter by chapter and we covered some of the historical background already so we can start with chapter 2, but those interested in the historical background and also some of the methods and the studies on the regional studies of the agrarian reform can look into chapter 1. Now, on the second chapter, you examine the work of Sinamos, which you have done before, I believe, in uh, Paolo Drinot's book uh, with Aguirre, A uh, Peculiar Revolution, and you, you examine the work of Sinamos and how it adapted its discourse in different regions. Perhaps you can tell us a bit about what you find and how the state attempted to promote the reform in different ways in different places.
2: Yes. Um, so it's worth saying, for those who don't know, Sinamos uh, was a government Agency, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, the Sistema Nacional de Apoyo a la Mobilización Social, um, mm-hmm. system of support for social mobilization, um, and so the Velasco government had this explicitly no party policy, uh, no political party, um, including for themselves. So Sinamos was imagined as um, a kind of activist agency that would facilitate participation rather than taking on a vanguard role um, and, and kind of leading from the centre uh, and, and in that respect um, presence in the regions was really sort of central to their view of, of political mobilisation so there were a series of there were local level promoters, then there were zonal offices, then regional mm-hmm. offices and a, and a national office um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and this was kind of Imagined as a as a network that would enable to people to participate um, in politics on their own terms and in their local area. Um, in terms of regional comparison, this was central to the to the design of the book um, uh, and and the. The reason for that is that I wanted to discover how the agrarian reform was debated and experienced on the ground in different regional contexts. So, I compare uh, Pura in on the northern coast, um, which is really a centre of capitalist development, um, and and became a centre of activism during the agrarian reform. Um, I compare that with Cusco, which uh, is from in the southern highlands and has um, sort of a long history of peasant uh, politics um, peasant unions um, and is also culturally more indigenous with a large number of um, Quechua speakers um, and the third place I, I chose is Tacna um, which is characterised by a large number of minifundios and uh, not really a large uh, uh, agro industrial estates like in the northern coast and um, uh, so, so I, I kind of compare um, the activities of Sinamos in each of these regions and how did uh, the promoters that work for the government kind of try and translate the reform into mm-hmm. locally meaningful terms. So, I found that the reform was kind of built in different ways in each of these regions. So, in Pura, it was very much about um, gaining control of the means of production and a kind of uh, class struggle um in Cusco it was about um the the ancestral claims to the land and, and continuing a, a peasant struggle that had been in existence for a long time um, in Tacna uh it was quite different to either of those cases in that there there wasn't um such a, a lot of land available for expropriation um but there was an important sense in which um, Tacna, which had been occupied by Chile earlier in the 20th century, um, uh, could participate in a national revolution as well. So so even though the mm-hmm. agrarian politics were not as central to the region, um, nevertheless being part of this revolution was uh, seen as significant. So uh, I, I guess... Uh, beyond the like the differences and similarities between the region, what I discovered was the way that Sinam was operated as a as a um, arm of the state as well, and the kind of how it facilitated links between national government and local politics. Um, uh, I, and in particular, I found that there was a consistent effort in each of these three regions to create what Gramsci has called organic intellectuals. So people who, mm-hmm. um, you know, may not have been through any formal education, but could nevertheless um, take on a leadership role in their in their local environment um, and kind of think the, the the community's way through social change and uh, and, and the thinking behind this uh, um, was that the Velasco government, you know, was was. Always aware that it wasn't going to last forever, I think. Um, and you know, in 1975, Velasco is removed in an internal coup. And so, this effort to create organic intellectuals is driven by a desire to sustain the agrarian reform beyond the life of the government. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the interesting legacies, actually, of, of the reform. Um, uh, uh, I, I guess the other thing to mention is that this all this kind of uh, political mobilisation at the local level and um, intervening in in disputes with landowners and so on generated a series of tensions, um, and it really focused attention on rural politics in a way that hadn't been the case previously. So, um, political parties such as Vanguardia Revolucionaria. Really shifted their focus from urban politics and student politics to engaging in rural um, issues because they saw that as the, as the place where um, the real class struggles were going to take place.
1: Yeah,
0: I think that was a very uh, good summary of what you can find in chapter two. It's very, very interesting how you find those differences as well, and uh, how the reform, once the idea of the reform was to live on beyond Velasco's government mm-hmm. and going the third chapter now uh you look at velasco's government's use of education which is one of the many interesting aspects of of la revolución de velasco i found it particularly interesting to read how the discourse propelled a new generation which you have just mentioned perhaps you can tell us a bit more uh, about this not from perhaps the cinema's angle but from the education point of view
2: sure um so i think Education played a central part in the agrarian reform, um, both uh, in order to facilitate the functioning of the cooperative system, so to kind of develop technical knowledge and the the understanding of economic systems, but also in order to feed into wider social change. So this is, we're talking about the 1970s, really, when a lot of this is happening, and um, there's a popular idea that consciousness is the foundation of social relations following Paulo Freire and that education has a key role in in developing consciousness. Um, So one of the interesting things I found when I was looking at kind of course programs and educational manuals used with cooperative members is that there's a huge emphasis on ideology um, and discussing political issues of the day. So it's really education as a kind of um, imagined as, a, as a, a point of departure for empowerment um, and for um, getting more engaged in politics um, so that links back to what I was saying about organic intellectuals, that these training courses were used as a way of connecting campesinos and giving them a political platform um, uh, and I, I I found this in in a, a series of interventions discussed in the chapter. So uh, I mentioned um, rural education programs that took place in cooperatives, but there was also ALFIN, which was a, a national literacy training program, which again followed these ideas of Freire and, and um, teaching people to read using concepts and um, ideas that were relevant to them and, and that were um Sort of tangible. Um, so literacy as a as a step towards wider political engagement, rather than just a technical skill to be used um, in the workplace, for example. Um, and the other important kind of um, overarching theme in education at the time is the education reform, which is the kind of the 1972 um, education reform, which is the biggest overhaul of the education system, mm-hmm. I think, uh, in, in the 20th century and really um, expresses this idea uh, of using education to reshape society and to and kind of challenge um, inequalities that have been naturalised. Um, and so um, education is... Um, Opened up to new, like new social science perspectives and methods. Uh, discussion of things like uh, socioeconomic inequalities, um, recognition of Quechua, the introduction of bilingual um, education. Um, uh, so, in terms of uh, sort of going back to the point you were making about propelling a new generation, um, I think that that education. Um, f- formed a, a kind of a key plank in this new vision of Peruvian citizenship that the um that the Velasco government was trying to promote. Um, so it's important to remember that since 1896, vast majorities of, of campesinos had been denied the vote on the basis that they were mm-hmm. illiterate. Um, uh, and still one of the big criticisms. Of the agrarian reform is that people, you know, that the campesinas were not um, sufficiently educated to take on uh, positions of responsibility um, in in agricultural enterprises, and there's there's a, an important racial undertone to this. Mm-hmm, um, definitely, uh, that you know that that these are uh, indigenous. Uh, campesinos and that um, you know if they don't read and write Spanish then they're not uh, you know they can't take on those positions of responsibility. The the Velasco government's approach was quite the opposite that um, you know you need to educate as you go um, and that if you sit around waiting for, for people to be educated before an agrarian reform happens, then then it's never going to happen because there'll be too much resistance um, from those, uh, you know, in power. Um, So to give you a a few concrete examples of how um, this education um, kind of propelled a new campesino generation. Mm -hmm. Um, I found that in Pura, in particular, um, the training courses were described as having created an esprit de corps um, among uh, cooperative members. Um, And and we see this continuing into the 1980s. So um, in the the 80s, the the cooperative Negrioloa, which was still in existence, um, used – the kind of ideas that had been in vogue in the 70s to push for changes to the marketing of produce and to kind of exercise a a much more direct control uh, over prices um, and organising kind of um, local commerce. Um, And so this kind of education that asserted that campesinos were citizens and that they were Uh, ready to take on positions of of power and responsibility, I think, was very important in challenging the the status quo uh, that had existed prior to to the agrarian
1: reform. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
0: Now looking at chapter four, we look at the public discourse of the reform, which is one of the perhaps more studied aspects uh, right now following the, the movie, uh, the documental, La Revolución y la Tierra. Uh, You look especially Mm -hmm. at the innovative campaigns, which you have looked at before in your 2012 uh, paper for the Journal of Latin American Studies, which we mentioned earlier. But I found it interesting that you found that despite the nature of the regime, which is uh, authoritarian, it's so an eruption of public debate. Perhaps you can tell us a bit more about the public discourse, the campaign of the reform and of the government itself and the effects that this campaign had in the population?
2: Yeah, so um, when Velasco seizes power, uh, the Congress is closed uh, and elections are suspended throughout the uh, military government. Mm-hmm. But there's nevertheless an, an emphasis on the campesino voice, as, yes. as a voice of, of political legitimacy, a source of political legitimacy. Um and so there's a deliberate effort to create new fora in which these voices could be heard. So you find that um, uh, government publications make use of campesino correspondence. Um, there are radio fora, which is where um, the, the makers of certain radio programs would uh have a meeting with the listeners following and that they would be then invited to to contribute ideas and, and suggestions for the subsequent um programs. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the introduction of Quechua language broadcast on both TV and television, um, and state sponsored documentaries which centred on rural communities. Um, so there's a real diversification of media content and practices. Um, uh, and so, um, you know, paradoxically, although it's an authoritarian um, regime, actually is quite um, an innovative and, and radical time in the arts in Peru. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of experimental theatre, uh, music, um, sort of new, con- new combinations of indigenous and uh, mestizo art, uh, art forms. Um, and so all of these things give, a great deal of vibrancy to the, to the the political propaganda that emerged at this time, um, and being a military government, they really uh, tended to delegate a lot of this stuff to intellectuals and uh, artists who already were inspired by the idea of the growing reform. Um, and I think it's that that makes the the kind of um, interventions in public discourse so sort of striking because it's precisely not something coming from a you know a stuffy government office it's Mm -hmm. it's a kind of outcome of of collaboration with a quite diverse set of people um but debate also erupted i think because of the uh, a huge amount of opposition that the regime encountered, um, both from the left and from the right. So on the left, you had uh, new left parties like Vanguardia Revolucionaria, the Movimiento de Izquierda Revolucionaria. And on the right, you had APRA and Unión Notrista. And um, And precisely because of the absence of formal political arenas like the Congress, uh, I think debate got pushed into the media and other social spheres uh, to to, to a much greater extent. So Mm -hmm. um, cooperative uh, assemblies, for example, became a a kind of a proxy for political party rallies. Um, And, and the political parties were, were seeking ways of exerting influence within the trade unions, within the cooperatives and within other um, sort of uh, social property organisations that were established in, in other uh, sectors at the time. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, we kind of tend to think of um, democracy as, as like... a a, a very civilian thing that has no uh, you know can never exist within a dictatorship but actually um, you know a lot of um, if we think about democracy in alternative terms in terms of um, political participation then there are lots of really interesting developments at this this time despite the fact that um, it's in formal terms it's a dictatorship yes definitely Uh, and Chapter
0: 5 now looks at the contentious memory of the Reform, which is something that's on debate these days as well, every time there's any mention of Velasco. You look at the Mm. contentious memory of the Reform, the contested memories, uh, and I think this is a fascinating look at the, the creation, the circulation, and the use of these memories, which as I mentioned are politically significant until this day. What did you find in these memories and people's effort to locate these within a variety of identities? I think that's one of the more interesting aspects I, I read on the book, as I'm interested in memory, but what what more can you tell us about this aspect of of the reform?
2: Yeah, well, I think probably the, the aspect that is most immediately apparent is that, that, that memory of the agrarian reform is divided along ideological lines. Um, yes. And this is... Uh, in part because of how the reform was talked about at the time. So it was bound up with political identities uh, forged at the time. So um, organisations like Sinamos, um, they were they they had a kind of collective identity that surrounded mm-hmm. the agrarian reform, and, and the people that worked for the organization had tended to, to retain that perspective that this was a a good thing, that it was a, a, a act of social justice, and that it um, you know it really contributed to, to national development. Um, similarly, the, the CNA, the Confederación Nacional Agraria, which was established by the Velasco government. Sees the reform as kind of foundational to a new, uh, a new kind of politics a new opening for campesino participation. Um, so I think it's um, kind of a potent political system symbol, um, both for the left and for the right. So on the right, mm-hmm. you know, it, it embodies, embodies everything that they. Uh, see as uh, damaging and dangerous about uh, state-led reform um, and about, uh, you know, the redistribution of wealth that this can unleash. <laughs> Uh, sort of chaos uh, and leads to economic collapse, uh, and so these are kind of the contrasting narratives that are continually being um, reproduced. And, and you notice it every time on, on the anniversary of the agrarian reform or on the anniversary of the coup that these these stories get reiterated. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I think there's also been kind of deliberate ma- manipulation um, in order to. To kind of silence some aspects of the agrarian reform and, and make it that state policies around uh, wealth redistribution are a sort of, um, to use Judith Butler's term, unspeakable. That they can't, that they become seen as so extreme that they can't be contemplated in policy circles. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but I think it's you know it's important to look behind that and and especially to think about the memories that don't get transmitted within those sort of ideological uh, confrontations. So there are histories of social inequality and racial discrimination that preceded the agrarian reform, um, and those are often uh, sort of glossed over, particularly with this recent narrative of of the Belaunde regime as being a kind of uh, sort of source of stability and um kind of moderate politics you know actually that mm-hmm. that period in rural areas was characterized by huge racial discrimination and, of course yeah. and, and oppression uh, uh, of campesinos um, and so it's important to remember you know what it was the agrarian reform was seeking to address um uh, and if we do that then i think you know that also alters how we see land rights and wealth distribution now and that's why it's particularly important for younger generations to to study these things Um, and I think kind of beyond politics and beyond ideology um, the the memory of the agrarian reform is also incredibly complicated when it comes to personal relationships and and kind of community cohesion Um, so you don't uh, some of some uh, com- communities campesinas the peasant communities were created at the time of the agrarian reform and, and the whole community um you know its landownings were articulated through the agrarian reform and um, mm-hmm. and so in that way it's foundational for them but many communities Particularly in the Cusco region, prefer not to talk about the agrarian reform because of the of the kind of uh, internal divisions that it gave rise to, um, particularly as regards you know who was included in the cooperative, how the land was worked, how um, who gained most, um, when who was excluded, uh, particularly in cases where the cooperative lands were later occupied by. Thomas de Tierra in the 1980s um, by communities seeking to to kind of uh, take control of um, agricultural cooperative land. Uh, And so there are kind of histories of a lot of social tension um, that are then very difficult to talk about in the context of memory of the agrarian reform. And so I think. You know, one of the interesting things I found at the local levels, how people mm-hmm. navigate this and how, you know, in mm-hmm. some cases they, they, you know, recognize their differences and are able to sort of talk about it and remember it in different ways. But in other cases, it, it, there's such a history of, of uh, kind of um, internal struggle that it becomes quite painful to talk about it, particularly in, in the aftermath of the internal um, struggle you know, of course. the 1980s.
0: I wanted to go back to something you mentioned because I think it's useful for the question about the concluding chapter. You mentioned the importance of refocusing the reforms, public discussion from economic issues to a larger political debate, and you have touched upon it a bit on the last uh, answer you gave. Perhaps you could develop that a bit more uh, Explain us what you went more with that, going from the economic issues to a larger political debate because it is more complicated than that.
2: Yeah, Um, so I think um, you know Carmen Solis, who studied the Bolivian agrarian reform, makes the point that legal mechanisms and economic provisions can only ever tell part of the story. Um, So what is goes into the law doesn't dictate what happens in the reality uh, and the reality mm-hmm. is 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 much more political um, so i think it's important to recognize the agrarian form as an ideological project and an attempt to reshape society um, and this is true not just of the peruvian case but of other uh, parts of latin america so um Heidi Tinsman has worked on the Chilean agrarian reform and sees that as a, a kind of key moment in the reconfiguration of gender roles. And um, Nancy Lapp has looked at uh, Brazil and China and Venezuela and how the agrarian reform there in each of those countries was linked to an expansion of suffrage. Um, so, Agrarian reform being used literally to expand the number of people that might uh, vote for you or, or support you. Um, so, agrarian reform is really tied into a sort of political systems and political participation, um, and, and that kind of doesn't get captured if we insist on analysing uh, the success and failure in terms of, you know, production figures um, and kind of economic policy.
0: And just to bring the discussion a bit more back to the times we're living in right now, you mentioned this a few times in your book, but I want to ask directly, how do you think your book speaks to the present day, present state of Peruvian society?
2: Yeah, that's a difficult question. Um, I think, <laughs> you know, at the moment, there's a lot of discussion of, the, of Castillo introducing a new uh, land reform Um and it remains to be seen what that will consist of in practice, but I think what it does highlight is that there is a continued need for land reform or, or uh, you know interventions in rural areas that will create some sort of redistribution of wealth and it's, it's likely to be of a very different character to the velasco government's um efforts you know we're living in very different times here but some of the problems really haven't gone away such as um you know uh, social exclusion social and racial exclusion and uh, the dominance of landowners so um the landowners now Are not predominantly the kind of traditional uh, large families that there, you know, elite families that there were in the time of Velasco. But there are these huge companies now, conglomerates, um, oftentimes who have land holdings that are larger than than those that preceded the agrarian reform. And so there is a problem here that still needs to be addressed, uh, and that still, um, I think, is a big drag on um you know economic development and a source of political instability as well Um, i I think another way that the book speaks to to current politics is in in its exploration of regional politics which are, are now so um important really there's you know often a big Breach between what's discussed and what goes on in Lima and what happens in in other regions of the country, um, and so I think the kind of the reasons for those differences and the different dynamics that that take place in in different regions still need to be grappled with and kind of viewing that from a historical perspective, I think is very important. Um, mm-hmm. And I think um, you know, in a kind of More obvious way, perhaps, the agrarian reform continues to act as a a political reference point um, in 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 debates on on politics. You know, almost every election there is some uh, discussion of you know what what your view is on Velasco or the agrarian reform, and this is a way of judging the the politics of of particular. Uh, candidates uh, and so the the reform continues to have a political um, significance that perhaps transcends what it did in terms of um, economic policy or agricultural policy.
0: Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. That was actually very very interesting. I didn't want to finish the interview without asking you about recent literature on the agrarian reform. There's so I don't want to say a renewed interest, but there's definitely a lot of recent body of work that takes a look at local dimensions and places that are formed within the larger story of the regions, also a bit more nuanced uh, as well. What do you think about these recent publications, uh, perhaps uh, mm-hmm. Jamie Hellman's uh, book, there's also uh, Jose Luis Renique's book on, on Puno, I, I believe. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about what you think about these most recent publications.
2: Yeah, well, and there's been a lot since those those two that you mentioned. And mm-hmm. I think it's really exciting to see that people are, you know, examining different dimensions of of the period and of the reform. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, in a lot of ways, the historical distance has made it possible to reach new interpretations and kind of take a more nuanced perspective. And, you know, as so often happens in history. Um, so one of the things I discussed with. Um, Carmen Solis, because um, we did a, a joint podcast in the Historias uh, podcast, um, yeah. and she also found that trying to study the grain reform with the literature of the era uh, was, you know, you would get mired in kind of very politicized accounts that. Um, didn't, that, that were somewhat closed in their perspective. Whereas now I think, you know, we have distance from it and we can see that we don't have to categorise the, the regime as right or wrong or as progressive or reformist. Um, and, and some of these kind of categories, that these very strong class categories that were used for the analysis in the 1970s and 80s are kind of used with, um, or, or are, are kind of being replaced by other other frameworks of analysis um, uh, I, I think in this respect Enrique Maya's book uh, Cuentos Feos de la Reforma Agraria mm-hmm. um, uh, Ugly Stories of the grand Reform was That's great was you know a big inspiration for me um, and kind of really sort of pushed off this idea of of, um, viewing the reform from different perspectives simultaneously and not trying to enforce a a single uh, interpretation. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's been built on by others. So just recently a book came out on the experience of the agrarian reform in Ayacucho by uh, Jaime Orrutia and others. Um, And Mm -hmm. Rolando Rojas has written a book on... um, Grain reform in in La Convencion, and he goes he does the kind of pre history of the of Velasco's reform by showing you know um, how much uh, peasant activism there was in the sixties and the how how much change that actually achieved even before Velasco's reform. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think these kind of different regional perspectives are really important, um, and they help us to see. Kind of the contrasting experiences. Yeah, definitely. And perhaps before we end
0: this interview, anything else you might want to add about the book that perhaps we haven't touched upon in the interview, or perhaps we want to develop uh, something that we haven't talked in depth enough.
2: Sure. I mean, I think um, you know, as a historian, probably I always want to talk about sources, <laughs> it's such a cliche. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think um, you know, it's important to. to to recognise that the agrarian reform uh, is difficult (laughs) to study um, through sources because um, a a lot of the more usual things that you might use are not accessible. So um, in the National Archives there's a a large amount of material relating to the agrarian reform but it's not being catalogued catalogued. Um, and so it's not accessible to to researchers. Uh, And and also, given that the Velasco government ended in in a coup and that that subsequently there was a strong um, push from central government away from the agrarian reform and trying to disassociate from it, there's been very little attention to preserving the archives of of that era. Um, And this contrasts with other places like Mexico, where the agrarian reform was really... Uh, you know, a central part of the PRI's narrative about uh, Mexican politics, um, and so mm-hmm. in my case, I I had to be quite creative in what sources I could use. But actually, I I think you know, as, as sometimes happens, unexpected things emerged by doing that, and and I found in particular that. Um, sources that are not often used for studying land reform like posters and pamphlets and and Mm -hmm. and film actually are an incredibly rich source um, precisely for analyzing the kind of ideological and political dimensions of land reform
0: Mm -hmm. thank you very much anna for the interview before we finish what new projects are you working on right now
2: so I'm still very much interested in in Peru. Um, I'm working at the moment on a uh, a book chapter centering on on the work of intellectuals during the Velasco regime, uh, and particularly a, a publication by Sinamos called Participación, uh, and looking at how it kind of uh, progressive intellectuals position themselves within the regime and the kind of conflicts that emerged between civilians and military officials um and how to kind of promote the reform or or promote the revolution uh through through text and this is um it's a project that forms part of a wider book, an edited volume by Carlos Aguirre and others on mm-hmm. um, El Estado Editor. So the, the, the state as editor and, and the ways in which the state in Latin America has intervened in uh, publishing uh, um, with, with a wide variety of effects. Um, mm-hmm. The other the other interest that has really developed since I finished my PhD is radio Um So following my PhD, I went to Colombia and did a postdoc at um, the Universidad de Los Andes, um, Mm -hmm. and I looked at the archive of Acción Cultural Popular, which is uh, an incredible um, Catholic uh, radio organisation established in the late 40s that continued to the late 80s um, and was centred on – Literacy training uh, for campesinos. So, so again, it's this question of communication in rural areas, and I think this is a really uh, sort of interesting. Question at the time, of which you still have high rates of illiteracy, um, and yet there's a lot of interest in uh, the po- political mobilization of, of campesinos, and uh, and also a lot of anxiety. So ACPO is a very different organization to Cinamos in that they're trying mm-hmm. to promote really modernization in the US mold um, and, and kind of encouraging campesinos to be. Uh, sort of self-supporting and centered on the family unit. There's no discussion really of uh, like national organizing. Um, And um, so I look look at the kind of ways in which ACPO communicates its vision of of modernization and what response Mm -hmm. this gets from uh, Colombian peasants.
0: Mm -hmm. That all sounds very interesting, Anna. We're all looking forward to it. Thank you very much again for joining us here on the New Books Network in Latin American Studies to talk about your recently published book, Land Without Masters, Agrarian Reform and Political Change Under Peru's Military Government.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: That's all from us here at the New Books Network. Have a good day.